Hello and welcome to AMSSM Sports Medcast. Today we are highlighting the new AMSSM position statement on athletes with attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder, which was published in the May 2023 issue of the Clinical Journal of Sports Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy Schroeder, and I'm joined today by Dusty Narducci, who is a sports medicine physician at the University of South Florida and St. Leo University. Additionally, she is with USA Hockey and a ringside physician. She is also an eating disorder specialist. Dr. Narducci serves as an author on this position statement. Dusty, welcome to AMSSM Sports Medcast, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today about the brand new position statement. Jeremy and listeners, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Well, attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder, otherwise known as ADHD, is very common among the general population and may even be more prevalent among athletes. ADHD itself is not a new concept, and most of us physicians in the sports and exercise medicine field are pretty familiar with ADHD. The AMSSM had previously published a position statement on ADHD on athletes back in 2011. So what was the decision to revamp this position statement, and how were you selected as one of the co-authors? So the AMSSM Publications Committee decided that it was time for a revamp of this position statement, and then the AMSSM Board of Directors chose a lead author, Dr. George Pajalte, then a diverse team of co-authors, and I got to be one of them. So writing this position statement was not an easy task. We had a fantastic team of co-authors, and then we were divided into subgroups. So using a literature search of keywords and standardized index terms of over 8,000 articles. We then sat as a writing team and reviewed through all of those. After multiple meetings, reviews, more meetings, rewriting, more meetings, more meetings, and more meetings, I'm confident to say that we are all very excited to see this position statement finally published. That's awesome. Now, out of curiosity, how long did this process take? Goodness, Jeremy, <laughs> making me go back in time here. I would say almost two years. Wow. Yeah. I remember Dr. Paholte presented on ADHD and athletes at last year's mm -hmm. AMSSM conference and had a robust amount of information then. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's incredible to me that it took from pre presenting all that information last year to then coming to a final position statement publication that's coming out just now. Couldn't agree more. I think that's why these are so valuable because it goes through so many processes and so much work gets put into them. All right. And I definitely want to take that time to highlight all the hard work that you guys did. So let's jump right into it. I think for many of us, the initial diagnosis and establishment of a treatment regimen is the biggest hurdle with ADHD. It's not so much for me, like if I inherit a patient and I can continue on the medications, but I'm always kind of nervous about like, oh, making that proper diagnosis? Am I getting it right? Uh, what can you tell us about the recommended approach to diagnosis and management of ADHD? Yeah, you are correct. Diagnosing ADHD is challenging. So I recommend using the DSM-5 criteria for diagnosis. It can be very helpful. So just to kind of go through it a little bit, the DSM-5 divides ADHD into inattention and hyperactivity impulsivity subtypes. So to meet the diagnostic criteria for both of those subtypes, it requires a few different things. So point one, symptoms must be present for at least six months and are inappropriate for a person's developmental level. The second point is that the symptoms must be present before the age of 12. 
symptoms are present in two or more settings. So school, work, home, different environments. And there must be clear evidence that symptoms are interfering with function in those specific environments. And then the last point is that there cannot be another mental health disorder or other disorder that's causing these symptoms. Unless there's concern for other diagnoses, neuroimaging and laboratory evaluations really are not needed. The most effective treatment for ADHD combines psychotherapy and pharmacotherapy, and stimulant medications are first-line treatment, which I'm sure we're going to chat more about later on in the podcast, Jeremy. Thank you for that overview. And you know, while it's, it's helpful to have that DSM-5 criteria using various diagnostic evaluations, we know it's also important to generate a good differential diagnosis and recognize various conditions that could be mimickers of ADHD. Now, Dusty, you wrote this section on the pattern identification for differentiation. What are the most common doppelgangers for ADHD and how can we best tease these out? This was one interesting section and I couldn't stop writing about it. I got in trouble a few times for my words. They were lengthy, but it ended up being really interesting. So, so many medical conditions mimic ADHD. You know, that just makes the diagnosis and treatment that much more difficult. Medical conditions, including malnutrition, endocrine disorders, even lead poisoning, as well as central nervous system infections, trauma, things like that, especially concussions, really need to be considered in appropriate cases. Psychological conditions, including generalized anxiety disorder, um, MDD, so you know you have your major depressive disorder, PTSD, OCD, these can all present with symptoms of inattentiveness, impulsivity, difficulty concentrating, but unlike ADHD, the symptoms associated with mood disorders are way more episodic in nature. So that's usually how I distinguish those two. And then impaired behavioral control in ADHD helps to distinguish it from autism spectrum disorder, which presents more commonly as a person's inability to tolerate changes in their environment. Learning disabilities need to be considered, as well as caregiver dynamics and, you know, unfortunate of child abuse or even adult abuse. These can lead to symptoms similar to ADHD in both children and then later on in adulthood. Additionally, collaborating care with other expert clinicians, assessments um, such as validated screening tools, labs, genetic testing, neuroimaging, all of these really need to be considered when it's appropriate. Awesome. And that's such an expansive amount of things to consider and think about. And I love that the position statement has an included table of the various ADHD-like symptoms with the corresponding appropriate assessments to help us differentiate and sort through this process to make sure we're not missing anything. And I think this will serve as a fantastic resource. Great, that was my baby, so I'm excited. <laughs> so the next section highlights not only some of the epidemiology, but also notes some key issues related to diversity, equity, and inclusivity, which or new additions to the position statement update. What are some of the key points out of this section? I'm thrilled that this section was included in the position statement. It brought so much awareness to many important issues, some that I think a lot of the co-authors and lead author didn't even think about. So studies suggest that ADHD is more prevalent in males than females. But ADHD is often delayed in females, misdiagnosed as generalized anxiety disorder, or sometimes even just overlooked in general due to gender stereotypical behavioral patterns. 
you know, although there's limited information on diagnosis, treatment, and prognosis of ADHD among those of low socioeconomic and marginalized communities, we do know that individuals are less likely to be diagnosed with ADHD, use their prescribed medications, and they even have a higher dropout rate from treatment. Parental engagement seems to be a determining factor in regards to ADHD treatment among children in these types of settings. And we also know too from studies that immigrant children with non-English speaking parents are less likely to be treated with stimulants. We don't have enough data to know exactly why marginalized communities have these disparities, but the lack of healthcare access, language barriers, stigma, and negative views about ADHD, as well as financial insecurities are just a few factors that I think we do need to mention in further research. I, I couldn't agree more. I think there's so many opportunities here to increase our understanding as a sports medicine community, as we're increasing our focus on social determinants of health. So I think that's a key inclusion here in this position statement. So now let's move forward to the position statement section on pharmacotherapy. Most of us have some familiarity with stimulants like Ritalin and Adderall, but what are the various medication treatment options available for our athletes with ADHD? So there are three main classes of medications currently approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Association, or the FDA, for ADHD. You have stimulants, non-stimulants, and tricyclic antidepressants. Also, bupropion is prescribed for off-label use. In a general sense, most ADHD medications increase norepinephrine and sometimes, or in addition, increase dopamine. Um, they do this through releasing these neurotransmitters, or sometimes they prevent the reuptake of these neurotransmitters, and some medications just do all of the above. Stimulants such as methylphenidate, dextroamphetamine, amphetamine salts, modafinil, and dextroamphetamine are first line for the treatment of ADHD. Most of these are available in short and long-acting forms, so it's really important to have those so you can change the regimen and the dose and things like that to help people have less side effects and get a better effect. Now, Desi, these medications have been a game changer with management of ADHD, but also one of the biggest controversies with managing ADHD is with these medications and the potential side effects, and some are attracted to them also for the perceived performance enhancement or as ergogenic aids. When we're balancing between our athletes seeking these out for performance enhancing, while we're also concerned about side effect profiles, which can pose a real threat to the affected athletes. So what did your team discover in regards to balancing these two, two sides of the coin? There's always a risk and benefit, right? So possible Absolutely. adverse effects possible adverse effects of any stimulant include decreased appetite, um, gastrointestinal upset, sleep disturbances, irritability, headaches, elevated heart rate, and even an increase in blood pressure. It's really important to mention that stimulant use does not increase the risk of sudden cardiac death in athletes or anybody without an underlying cardiovascular disease. You know, we've heard that for a long time, but the research really does not support ordering a EKG routinely prior to initiating use of a stimulant medication. But of course, it's important to get a detailed family history and physical examination and order whatever needs to be ordered when it's the inappropriate situation. 
Non-stimulant medications for ADHD can cause adverse effects more often than stimulant medications and possibly even more threatening. So these adverse effects can be anything from suicidal ideation and mania to a lot of other things, low blood pressure, different stuff. Wow, that's something I would not have jumped to as a conclusion, thinking that our non-stimulant medication options could be more concerning or harmful to our athletes with ADHD than the stimulant options. So that's a really a great point to consider as we talk to our patients with ADHD. Obviously, it's an individualized approach, but I think we really need to look at the full picture of all these medicines. Now, moving away from the pharmacotherapy side of ADHD management for a second and transition to the role of exercise in the treatment of ADHD. Now, Dusty, this is hands down my favorite section in the entire position statement. There's a lot to discuss here, and you can tell I'm easily excitable. So why don't you take the time and to tell our audience about why you think I am so absolutely enamored with this section in this position statement. How can you not get excited about exercise, right? That's why most of us are sports medicine doctors, but studies have found that athletes with and without ADHD can benefit from sport participation, really specifically as they develop that motor coordination and those psychosocial skills associated with sport and sport participation. But physical activity, you know, it's beneficial for everything, including ADHD. So I'm really not surprised what our studies have found. Therefore, there may be a disproportionate number of athletes diagnosed with ADHD because of that in attention activating effect of physical activity. So we might actually be missing some of our athletes because they exercise so much. One study found 30 minutes of intermittent exercise, two minutes on and one minute off was beneficial, but exactly how much exercise is needed to control that impulsivity, lack of attention and hyperactivity, you know, associated with ADHD, we just don't know yet. You know, is more exercise better or is there a ceiling effect, you know, with regard to the amount of exercise needed? We just don't have that data quite yet. There is a lack of cohesive understanding of what, if any, influence that an ADHD diagnosis has on sport participation. But this also, again, presents a lot of worthwhile investigative opportunities. I completely agree. Now, I'm super excited and pretty convinced about the low risk of harm for encouraging physical activity in our patients with ADHD. And some really good things about that potential as an alternative or at least a complementary approach to treating ADHD. But what about the effects of ADHD medications on athletic performance? So you got excited about exercise. Now this is where I get really excited. I absolutely loved this section and looking at the stimulant medications and how they affect athletic performance, if they do, it was a very, very popular topic for discussion and is truly near and dear to my heart. I was one of the authors of this section for the position statement, but I also presented a topic at the 2022 annual AMSSM conference in Austin. You know, after writing this section, I became literally enthralled with the lack of data supporting the globally accepted belief that stimulant medications for the treatment of ADHD positively affected athletic performance and really gave athletes, you know, some unfair advantage. We are often taught that stimulant medications improve an athlete's endurance, their anaerobic performance, their reaction time, alertness, and it acts to reduce feelings of exercise fatigue. The use of stimulants as appetite suppressants and for the purpose of enhancing academic performance has also been concerned among the sports medicine community. 
know, unfortunately, Jeremy, these beliefs stem from subjective reports, hypothetical extrapolations, limited research design, and other just non-validated protocols. Furthermore, studies assessing performance effects are biased and not conducted exclusively on the athletic population, and especially not in those confirmed to have ADHD. We continue to spread theories about the performance enhancement of stimulants for the treatment of ADHD in athletes, when really we need to instead focus on creating more well-designed studies to assess these claims. I struggle with the idea that the use of stimulant medication in an athlete with a diagnosis of ADHD is an unfair advantage. You know, by treating ADHD in a diagnosed athlete, doesn't that allow for equalization of performance compared with athletes without ADHD? I mean, just something that I think. That's an absolutely fantastic point. Definitely something for us to chew on a little bit. As you mentioned, there are potential advantages with stimulant use for ADHD management, we also can't just neglect the risks of taking these medications are very real and can be as much or more of a hindrance. So it's not just a one-sided, all positive type things. So I really like the dialogue that in some sporting positions, it's the impulsivity of ADHD that might be beneficial to the athlete. And by treating with stimulant medications that can blunt some of those effects. So it's, again, it's not just this all out ergogenic aid, a super performance enhancing thing. You know, it reminded me as reading this section, a book series I like, the, the Percy Jackson books where these fictional demigods were all classified as having ADHD, but they said that they had these because that was part of their survivability as demigods and it was helping them be hyper vigilant in things and that reminded me of like hey impulsivity in some aspects of sport or in certain positions could be a benefit and to me it emphasizes the importance of shared decision making with our patients and our athletes to carefully weigh the risks and benefits of various pharmacotherapy options Jeremy, I think those are great points, and I'm really glad you're bringing them up. Again, it's an individualized risk versus benefit conversation that you have to have with your athlete. Now, what are some of the other options or substances that are used to treat ADHD besides the stimulants or some of the non-stimulant options that you discussed previously? Other substances used for the treatment of ADHD include caffeine and EPA supplements, such as omega-3 fatty acids. You know, in theory, these substances are thought to reduce delayed onset muscle soreness and restore that, you know, just restore muscles following eccentric exercise. But even athletes without ADHD are using these substances. So we don't really have any studies explicitly evaluating athletes and those with ADHD versus those without. Oh, Dusty, do I hear a call for more research? I definitely think you hear a call for more research. If anything from this position statement, there are so many research projects like in the making. I absolutely agree. Now, speaking of another very fascinating section delves into the relationship between ADHD and concussions. Now, I find the current review of literature here, and it seems very clear that there is a correlation between those with ADHD and an increased incidence with concussions and perhaps even longer recovery times. However, what I thought was really neat was those 
with ADHD on stimulant pharmacotherapy potentially have less concussions compared to those not taking stimulants and even peers without ADHD. Dusty, can you offer some clarity on what your team found? So the question of whether or not the presence of ADHD affects clinical outcomes following a concussion among athletes is something that really was not previously explored. You know, children and adolescents with ADHD may have a longer recovery time for return to academics and physical activity after a concussion compared to their peers without ADHD, but they did a similar study in college athletes and they didn't find this to be true. You know, whether a higher concussion symptom load, severity, and number of symptoms following a concussion is more prevalent in youth who have a diagnosis of ADHD, we just don't know yet. It's unlikely that stimulant medications affect concussion prognosis. Use may shorten concussion recovery time or have no effect at all. You know, recognizing whether an athlete taking a neurocognitive testing during concussion evaluation is or is not taking a stimulant medication is very important to get an accurate assessment. And I see this, you know, definitely be something that that needs to be evaluated in clinical medicine. Sometimes it can really skew the results. I'm working right now on a research project about ADHD in concussions and whether stimulant helps recovery or not. It's been quite interesting so far. So hopefully that gives us some more insight. Yeah, that sounds really cool. And another wrinkle into our expanding knowledge on concussions as that evolves in our practice as sports and exercise medicine physicians. On the final section on regulatory issues, your team illustrates the fine balance with inclusion of athletes with ADHD with measures to prevent abuse for performance enhancement. Now, Dusty, as a collegiate team physician yourself, what can you share about the current landscape of banned substances, therapeutic use exemptions, and the future outlook on this area? Jeremy, great question. Know your resources, number one. I feel like things change a lot and everything's a little bit different of what they expect, documentation, follow-ups, but the theoretic assumption that stimulant medications enhance performance in athletes really has led to the band of these medications by many athletic regulatory agencies, such as the IOC, WADA, NCAA, NFL, um, like MLB, I can go on and on. But a chart outlining league and organization specific rules related to the therapeutic use exemptions, as well as the pharmacological treatment of ADHD is included in the physician statement. And I think that's really useful. Do I think that might need to be updated as things change? Yes, absolutely. But right now, I think that's very helpful to kind of see it all laid out. Some organizations require an independent examiner to make the diagnosis of ADHD. Some require an extensive documentation prior to competition with or without periodic clinical updates throughout this athlete's career. You know, and then other organizations do not permit the use of stimulant medications regardless. So it's important for sports medicine physicians to be well-versed in where to find specific requirements of an athlete's athletic regulatory agency and to allow for appropriate execution of necessary protocols. Over the next few years, as other substance restrictions are updated by athletic regulatory agencies and more data surfaces about whether there is a true advantage in athletic performance with stimulant use, I suspect that we will also see a change in the regulation of stimulant use in athletes diagnosed with ADHD. Yeah, you bring up a great point in regards to 
knowing your resources, always checking out, making sure there's no updates or everything else and different regulatory process. Because some of your athletes at your level are potentially involved in not only just the NCAA, but other different bodies as well. And making sure that everything is in conjunction and, and whatever else and getting your therapeutic use exemption. So I think there's a lot of good information in this uh, section on regulatory issues uh, that can uh, serve as a great benefit for our community as well. Absolutely, Jeremy. There's so much to consider there. The MLB's model for how to monitor proper stimulant medication is very strict. You know, a player must submit a TUE application, and it's preferred that an MLB certified clinician makes the diagnosis of ADHD. Additionally, an expert panel and independent program administrator or an IPA, which are individuals who have no affiliation with the commissioner's office, any major league club, or the players association, those are also involved in the process. Wow, that's a lot of really good information, things that I had no idea or context before you mentioned that. So before we wrap it up today, Dusty, can you summarize your top pearls and clinical recommendations for this position statement? So a multidisciplinary team, history, assessment tools, physical exams, and other testing is indicated you know, when it's essential for the diagnosis and management of ADHD in athletes, you know, because there's so many different conditions that mimic it, like we talked about, you know, and there is a potential adverse effect of medications, especially when the diagnosis is unwarranted. So I think we need to focus our attention on making sure we get a true diagnosis of ADHD, something that we can streamline and be aware of the potential effects of medications for the treatment of ADHD, but don't avoid treating athletes with the first line treatment when appropriate. You know, finding a suitable pharmacological agent can be challenging, but altering the dose, the timing, duration, and type of medication can be very advantageous for the athlete's symptoms. And you can also maintain safety. You know, as sports medicine physicians, it's crucial that we are aware of the needed approval process for use of ADH stimulant medications employed by athletic regulatory agencies. More research is needed as we saw on many different things, but some things to highlight would be the relationship between ADHD and concussions, as well as the theoretical advantage of stimulant medications used concerning like that athletic performance advantage, weight loss practices and academics. And I really hope we continue to pursue research on inclusivity, equality and diversity, especially in our marginalized communities. Dusty, this is absolutely incredible. The amount of work you and your team put into this position statement is evident. This is a great body of work. It clearly has so much to contribute to our literature, at the same time, making a strong call for more literature and research to be done in the future. And I, for one, am very excited to serve as a force multiplier in teaching and discussing this with my colleagues, my residents, my medical students, and patients all alike in my own clinical setting. So thank you so much for taking the time to come out and join us today. Jeremy, thank you so much. And listeners, thank you as well. But most importantly, I can't thank all those incredible co-authors and lead authors and the board of AMSSM for allowing us to put this together. It was a lot of work and totally worth it. You know, being involved with this position statement and now the podcast has been really incredibly rewarding experience. So I'm honored to spread the word about this topic um, to my fellow sports and exercise clinicians. Couldn't have said it better myself. And if you enjoyed Dusty on today's episode, 
Um, happy to announce that you might be hearing a little bit more of her in future AMSM Sports Medcast ventures. Uh, we're excited to release throughout the upcoming year. I'd like to thank Dr. Dusty Narducci, co-author on the AMSSM position statement on athletes with ADHD. Links to this article in the May issue of CJSM can be found in our podcast show notes. I'd also like to thank you, the listener. I hope you have found this time valuable. And if so, please share this podcast with your colleagues and help promote the visibility of the podcast by liking, subscribing, and leaving a quality review on your preferred listening platform. And I hope you join us again soon for another Sports Medcast. The views expressed are the authors alone and do not represent the official policy or position of the University of South Florida, St. Leo University, the U.S. Army, Defense Health Agency, or the U.S. government.